Amen. Good morning. Ish. Good afternoon. That's better. Sorry, I'll get it right one of these days. I'm glad you're here, regardless of whether or not it's morning or afternoon. Uh, we are going to be wrapping up Acts chapter 5 and digging into Acts chapter 6 this morning. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there uh, in your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want to follow along, we put the black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. Be sure you write your name in that, take that home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is we're really going to get um, a behind-the-scenes look at some things going on in the early church. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. And we get to the end of chapter five, uh, we're going to get an inside look at what's happening behind the scenes in terms of the, the mounting persecution that is about to be unleashed on the church. And we're also going to see um, a behind the scenes look of what's going on inside the church, a real honest look at, at uh, struggles emerging and how they are addressed by the early church. Um, and so uh, we're going to dig in here in just a second. So to get us ready in Acts chapter Four, at the end of Acts chapter 4, we saw this, this summary of the hearts of the, the Christians um, coming together in and, and, and such a way that there was this tangible expression of love between the people, that each person didn't consider their own possessions their own, but were readily uh, letting go of things in order to love one another well. And this is contrasted with the beginning of Acts chapter 5, where you've got a couple who wants to be seen as a generous couple, but ultimately they're pretending to be Christians. They're lying not only to, to the disciples, but they're lying to God. And we saw that last week with um, Ananias and Sapphira. And so right after that, in Acts chapter 5, what we read is another summary of how the word of God is continuing to increase. Um, and so what's happening is the gospel has really exploded in Jerusalem. Uh, the apostles have not left Jerusalem and headed out yet, which we know that's part of what they're called to do, to take the gospel from not only Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. At this point, though, they're still uh, dug in in Jerusalem. They're seeing some amazing ministry happen in Jerusalem. The apostles are preaching in the temple. Uh, they're ministering in the streets. They're going from house to house, and the, and the word of God is just exploding, and people are being saved and healed, and people are praising God. So now what's going to happen, and we see in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 16, is that those who, are, who have been saved are beginning to go back to their home villages and spread the word. And so in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 16, we see that the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so this movement is beginning to breach the boundaries of Jerusalem and, and out into the countryside and the surrounding towns and villages. And such that people are hearing about this amazing work that God is doing in Jerusalem. They're loading up and bringing people to the apostles. Now, what's also happening simultaneous with the church just exploding, the gospel going out, is persecution is beginning to heat up. So we saw this in chapter uh, 4 where um, Peter and John are arrested. They're questioned before uh, the council, before the chief priests, and then they are threatened and released. And then from here, they go back to the church, and rather than shrinking back in fear, what do they do? They pray, God, make us more bold. And so we see at the end of Acts chapter 4 that the gospel continued to go out. The word was preached with boldness. So rather than shrinking back in fear, that these Christians are actually becoming more bold. So as the church grows, so does persecution. As persecution heats up, the church continues to grow. And so we're going to see something else in Acts chapter 5. So not only is persecution beginning to grow, it's beginning to become more organized. 
And we're going to see religious leaders actually getting together and kind of plotting and talking about how can we stamp out this movement called the way or followers of Jesus or Christianity. And one of the guys who's going to be mentioned in Acts chapter 5 that one of the religious leaders is a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now this is mentioned about halfway through Acts chapter 5. Here's why he is significant. In his day and time, he was the leading Pharisee among Pharisees and rabbi among rabbis. People sought to be taught and mentored by Gamaliel. He was highly respected in the culture and among his peers. Not only that, this is Saul's mentor. So in just a few chapters, we're going we're to encounter an individual who leads the persecution against the church who goes by the name of Saul. After he's radically converted, he goes by Paul and he writes most of your New Testament. But at this point in time, as persecution is heated up, Saul's mentor is the one meeting with the religious leaders in Jerusalem to try to figure out how are we going to stamp out this movement. And so the first thing that he does there in chapter 5 is he reminds the other religious leaders of previous spiritual or religious uprisings. He mentions the uprising of Judas, which is not Judas the disciple. Previous to that, there was a man who rose up in opposition to the government who was leading this religious movement. His name was Judas. And what Gamaliel reminds him of is, remember how we pressed in on him? And, and here's what happened. It just kind of dissolved and fell away. Just kind of fell apart and unraveled. And then he reminds them of Theodos. Theodos was another religious leader who rose up in the time of Jesus, and he was leading this religious movement, and they had pressed in on, on him and his followers, and, he, and, and Gamaliel reminds them, remember how that just kind of dissolved and fell away? So now what he's going to do in verse 38, he's going to talk about the Christians and this explosion in this movement. Look at what he says. He says, so in the present case, against Peter and John, the other disciples, these followers of Jesus, in this present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. In the same way that the followers of Judas fell apart and failed, in the same way that the followers of Theodos rose up and then began to dissolve and unravel and failed, so will this movement. However, in verse 39 he says, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So this religious leader says basically the same thing we're saying about this early church, that if it's of God, then it is clearly unstoppable. There's nothing you can do. The, the harder you try to stamp it out, the more it's going to explode. And so this religious leader is saying to the other religious leaders, listen, guys, we don't necessarily have to kill these guys. If we'll just leave it alone, we'll see what happens. If this is just man's invention, it'll completely fall apart. But if it is of God, it will be unstoppable. And so here's what they do. They take his advice, and in verse 40, when they had called the apostles together, the 12, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this is a little different from what happened in chapter 4. Now not only are they threatened, they actually got beaten here. Now this isn't like a, um, you know, a couple kids wrestling on the playground beaten. This is a first century flogging. This is like jail time punishment. We're going to beat you instead of serving time. So this was a, this was a pretty brutal thing these guys just experienced. And they said, don't you dare speak the name of Jesus anymore. They beat them and they let them go. And then look at verse 41. One, then they left the presence of the council, 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is, that the Christ is Jesus. So what we would expect to happen, the same way Gamaliel expected to happen is what? That they would go home scared, tail between their legs, right? Going home in fear, beaten, right? Probably bleeding from what they had just incurred and that they would go back and share this with the other disciples and followers of Jesus and they would begin to shrink back and dissolve and fade away. But instead of responding in fear, what, how do they respond? Rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And rather than shrinking back, they pressed forward in boldness. So this is what's happening in the early church. These guys were living out what we were just singing earlier. I was thinking about as we were singing that he takes brokenness aside and makes it beautiful. And Jason was talking about how the Lord does that how he takes our messes and our afflictions and our sufferings and our darkness and he brings hope, right? And Jesus ultimately overcomes whatever afflictions you may be facing. These guys believed it. This might end in a beating, it might end in our death, it might end in imprisonment, but ultimately we are preaching and proclaiming and believing in the one who has in fact overcome. And so then we'll move into chapter six, verse one opposite of what we might expect, opposite of the church unraveling and falling apart. Look at what verse one of chapter six says. Now in the, these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now keep in mind, Luke is writing this in chapter two. He describes how fast the church grew to about 3,000. Then in chapter four, he says about 5,000. In chapter six, it's grown to such that he's not even gonna try to put a number on it. He's just going to say it just increased dramatically. It had grown to the point we just couldn't keep up with how many believers there were and how many households there were and where people were worshiping and gathering under the, in, in, in the name of Jesus and under the banner of salvation in him. And so the disciples were increasing in number. But here's what happens in verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. One of the things I love about the Bible is its honesty. You know, it'd been so easy for Luke to just gloss over this issue because here's what's happening. There's, there's, a, there's a struggle inside the church. There's a struggle inside the church. Here, here's kind of the backdrop. Ministry, if you can imagine, you've got over 5,000 Christians and you've got 12 guys trying to lead this thing called the church. And they had been serving tables. They had been meeting needs. They had been praying with families. They had been teaching the word. They had been praying. I mean, these guys were probably exhausted. And in the process, we see this gravitation away from meeting the needs of all the people to just meeting the needs of those that were easy to meet, right? And so what we see is a linguistic barrier kind of emerging here that, that right, so the, those who speak Greek, the Hellenists, were actually being overlooked now in the daily distribution. They're widows. Now, ministry to widows is a really important ministry in the church still is today. Orphans and widows is, is a part of who we should be reaching out to, to minister to as a church, Matter of fact, in a few weeks, we're going to have a night about um, how you can be a part of supporting families that foster to adopt. You don't have to be a family that says we're going to foster to adopt. We want you to come and hear about how you can support those that are, right? Because right, we're to be a father to the fatherless as Christians. Well, in the same way in this first century environment, as you can imagine, it was incredibly difficult to be a widow. 
an agrarian culture where your very sense of existence and ability to eat food relied on hard work, working the ground, working the market, trying to create some sense of, of financial living for yourself. And for the widows who were in this culture, one, they were more than likely still grieving the loss of a husband, if you can imagine. You've know, been married to a person for a number of years. This person had been your, you know, part of your ability to, to live and your emotional stability and your, and your spiritual leader has now passed away. And so not only that, you're left with this daunting task of trying to feed yourself. And so the church stepped in naturally and helped take care of the widows. But the, uh, the workload had grown such that some were being overlooked. And those who were being overlooked, it seemed like were being uh, characterized by their inability to speak Hebrew. So the ones who were being, that were hard to minister to were being overlooked. And so this issue arose in the church. And we're going to see in just a minute how the apostles address this issue. But before we do, I want to just talk about some of the characteristics of the church, um, first of all, described by Jesus. So one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples is this, that my church will be characterized by, those who follow me will be characterized by how well they love one another. This is John 13, says it again in John 15, John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we know from biblical teachings that this idea of love is not simply just um, an affectionate, emotional feeling, right? It's not just this idea of, I feel giddy when I'm around you, pitter patter, what's the matter? You make me feel all good inside. This type of love is a love that is self-sacrificial, it's the kind of love that lays itself down for the object of its love. The, the kind of love that says, you know what? I will make your needs more important than my needs kind of love. So this kind of love has action, right? This isn't the kind of lip service love that we're so familiar with in our culture today where we say, I love you, but there's no substance to back it up. And so Jesus says, the world will know that you're mine by how well you love one another. And that will be obvious by the way you lay yourselves down for one another, the way you treat one another, the way you serve one another. More specifically, in, in James chapter one, he says this about pure religion. He says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James brings up this ministry to orphans and widows and says this, if you've been loved well by God, how in the world can you overlook these who are in the greatest need? How can you overlook orphans? How can you overlook the widows? And so we know this was a significant ministry for the church. Now, there were other ministries that they, got, that they had going on inside the church, but this is a key one in which a significant issue arose. And a sense of favoritism was beginning to set in. A sense of shifting away from loving everybody well and just loving those who were easy to love was beginning to, to set in. And so this complaint was brought to the spiritual leaders, to the apostles. If you're taking notes with us today, I want to look at something with you. So what we're seeing is this, this linguistic barrier emerging that becomes then a stumbling block or a barrier to keep the early church from loving one another well. So the unstoppable church is driven by the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome personal barriers in order to love one another. This is going to come up a couple more times in the book of Acts. Um, right now, it's a linguistic barrier. Um, a few chapters later, it's going to be an ethnical barrier. We're going to see some prejudice in the church come up, and they're going to have to overcome that. But you have these personal barriers that come up as obstacles that, that, that try to prevent the church from loving one another. Okay? 
Now, this is the same, this is the same obstacles we face, not just in the church, but even in any, any loving relationship we have, right? Isn't that the primary obstacle that keeps us from loving well? Our personal barriers, like in marriage? Isn't, isn't that the number one thing that's wrong with your marriage is you? Somebody agrees with me. Yeah. Your, your personal ambitions, your personal pet peeves, the, what you want at any given moment, right, is one of the number one barriers in your marriage. Right? It's one of the number one barriers in all of our relationships is ourselves. And so in order to love people well, our spouses, our friends, our children, we've got to be ready and willing to what? Lay down ourselves in order to serve, in order to love. And so this is what's happening here. These personal struggles have become a barrier. So now it's important to understand that loving people well must be driven by the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now why are those two, key, those two things key? Here's the first thing. Until or unless you've been loved well, you don't know how to love well. We are not born human beings knowing how to love well. We like to receive love from birth, right? That's inerrant. We want to be loved. We, nobody has to teach us that. We want to be wanted. We want to be loved. We want to be included. But giving love away is something we have to be taught. And, and, and more importantly, like, we can't love one another well until we have been loved well by God, and this is why serving the church, loving one another, must be driven by the gospel. What do we mean by that? See, when we have encountered the love and the mercy of Jesus as presented in the gospel, we encounter a love we've never encountered before and a grace that we've never encountered before. And so what, what we're to do is to take this amazing, endless love of God that's just pouring down on us, God's lavishing us, and we're to bend that out towards one another. Right? And if you're not drawing from that well, God's love and his mercy, you've got nothing to give away to anybody. And so the, this issue isn't just a logistical issue. It's, it's also a heart issue. It's a matter of the heart of coming back to, to be reminding one another, wait a second, we've been loved well by God. Therefore, we are to love one another well, to bend out to one another what God has so graciously given to us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Holy cow. I must be empowered by the Holy Spirit if I'm going to love anybody well besides myself. I love myself pretty well. I don't need the Holy Spirit for that. But if I'm going to love you well, I need the Holy Spirit working in me and on me. If I'm going to love my wife well, I need the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear, don't say that. Don't do that. Do this instead. Oh, so glad you gave me that idea. Because I don't naturally think about serving or loving my wife well. Even my children, I need the Holy Spirit restraining me, reminding me to display not only justice, but grace. To speak patience into my heart when I'm, when I'm at the end of my rope. Right? Giving me courage to have those hard conversations I need to have with my boys. So in order to love well, I need not only the fuel of the gospel, I need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now we know these guys have that, right? We know they do. And so this is empowered by the Holy Spirit and fueled by the gospel. Now, we're going to talk now, and we're going to move to verse 2 and talk about serving. So here's what they do. The 12 disciples summoned the full number of disciples. So the 12 are the apostles. They started as disciples. So you had 12. One of them bailed, Judas. They replaced him in chapter 1 of Acts. Now these disciples, these original 12, have become apostles, spiritual leaders in the church. Everybody else in the church was considered now a member of the church. 
So that's the only distinction we have in the church. Now keep in mind, the church is pretty young. So organization is just barely emerging. We're gonna see it kind of formalize a little bit today. How to manage all this growth and still minister to people. Like that's just, they're figuring this out on the fly. And so here's what we we're reading. The, the, the 12 apostles summoned the whole church, the full number of disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, it almost sounds like they're saying we're too good to do this. That's not at all what they're saying. Matter of fact, they've been doing this now for, for, for five chapters, serving and meeting the needs. What they're saying is the word that's translated right could also be translated pleasing or beneficial. And so they're just saying, listen, if we continue, you're right, there's a need that has emerged. And, and these folks have been being neglected. If we give all of our energy and time here, though, we're going to neglect the preaching and the teaching of God's word and the ministry of prayer. And ultimately, the whole church is going to suffer. Okay, so they're not saying we're too good to wait tables. What they're saying is just logistically speaking, we've got to figure something out here. And so here's what they decide to do. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you the seven men, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And so here's what's kind of formulating right before our very eyes. This is the emergent of the roles of elders and deacons in the church. Previous to this, we've just got apostles and, and, and church folk. But in order for the church to grow and flourish, not just on the outside, but also on the inside, we need all, all hands on deck. We need all saved members of the church contributing and pitching in here. And we're going to start with these seven guys. And so they pick seven guys. The requirements are what? Full of the Holy Spirit, having a good reputation, and having wisdom. And so for these guys, this is kind of real time. There's no manual on how to do this. They don't have another church down the road that operates as a model where they could go, hey, why don't you send a letter over to Ephesus and see how they dealt with this problem? Like they're trying to figure this out in, in real time. And so the Holy Spirit is leading these men to, to realize that, oh, all the believers have been filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, not just us. We don't have to ball hog this thing called ministry. We need to be empowering the church to do what God's called them to do. I'm sure they were having side conversations. John's like, hey, remember uh, when Jesus said that the world will know who we are by the way we love one another? And you know, Peter's like, oh, that's right, he did say that. And John's like, ooh, I'm putting that in my gospel. And he did, he wrote in his gospel. And they were having these conversations reminding one, oh, that's right, this isn't about us, it's about what God is doing. And if it's gonna be about what God is doing, we have to decrease, we have to make ourselves less critical in the equation and get all of God's people involved here. And this is emerging right before our very eyes. Now, historically speaking, I think the text implies this as well. This is the emerging of the role of deacon and or deaconess, depending on how you translate the rest of the New Testament. See, by the time we get to 1 Timothy, these are formal positions in the church. The, the book of Philippians begins with a distinction and role between the elders, the deacons, and the saints. But at this point in time, right, you've just got spiritual leaders and members. And so the, I think probably more than anything, the key word here is the word serve at the end of verse 2. See, the word serve in the end of verse 2 in the Greek language is uh, dikoneo, may not mean anything to you. However, if, you, if you've ever looked at the Greek language and you've looked at the word deacon in Greek, it is the word daikonos. 
And so this is the emergent of this formal acknowledgement of people set apart to serve in the church. It's very informal at this point, right? In its infancy. By the time we get to Romans, at the end of Romans in chapter 16, Phoebe is acknowledged as a deaconess, same, same root word here, servant in the church. Like I said earlier, Paul tells Timothy uh, to, 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 to pull elders in from the membership that they could lead and, and serve the church as overseers and elders and then look for some deacons and, and make sure they meet the requirements that they could serve in the church. And this is all emerging for, before our very eyes. I think it's so important here that we not get caught up in how to organize an organization, but we understand the heartbeat, heartbeat about behind what God is doing. Um, I think Ephesians 4 gives us a clear indication of what's happening right now in Acts 6. So in Ephesians 4, uh, starting in uh, verse 11, we're told that Jesus gave specific roles in the church. Look at Ephesians 4.11 with me. And he, that's Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are Spiritual leaders in the church. So Jesus gave these roles to the church for a reason. Verse 12. To equip the saints. Who are the saints? Everybody that's been saved. These aren't the super spiritual Christians. These are, this is all the Christians were called saints. So the spiritual leaders were given to the church to equip the members, those who have been saved, for the work of ministry. Now that word ministry is the word diakonos the same word that we get and we translate into deacon. You see this connection here? Now look at what happens when, when, when these spiritual leaders, like we're seeing in Acts 6, empower and equip the members to get involved in ministry. Look what Ephesians 4 says happens. This is beautiful. So when the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry, here's what happens. For building up the body of Christ. Until we, all until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And so spiritual maturity here is being compared uh, to a body that's growing to look more and more like Christ. And so, so far in the church, what we've seen is this massive expansion outwardly, right? The numbers are happening, just rolling in. But in Acts 6, what we're seeing is this, they're, they're beginning to realize, oh, we've got to press in. We've got a mission internally as well. And what's being acknowledged in Ephesians 4 is that when the church, when the spiritual leaders will equip the members to do ministry, the serving in the church, here's what happens. We begin to flourish internally as well. It's not just about piling on numbers, but it's about growing in maturity in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and, and, and 13, I think, offer a fantastic commentary on what we're reading here in Acts 6. Um, many years later, after the church has really grown and things have become more formalized in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul is now teaching. He's writing a letter, and he talks about spiritual giftings. And really, the sum of 1 Corinthians 12 is this, that every person who is saved has been given the Holy Spirit, and if you have the Holy Spirit, you've been imparted or given a spiritual gift a supernatural ability to serve in the church. And, and Paul belabors the point. You, you, you've been gifted. If you're saved, you have the spirit. If you have the spirit, you have a spiritual gift. Every member gets a gift. Now the gifts are different 
right? And you don't get to determine which gift you have, but if you're saved, you've been imparted a supernatural spiritual gift. The, the heartbeat of, of this chapter, I think, we read in, in verses four through seven of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, lots of different ways you can get involved in the church and serve, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Verse seven, to each, not to some, not to most, not to the super cool Christians, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So not only if you're in Christ, have you been given a spiritual gift imparted to you by the Holy Spirit of God according to his plan for you and how he desires for you to serve, but you've been given this gift that you might serve one another for the common good of the church. You haven't been given a spiritual gift to serve yourself or to make yourself look good or to pursue your own interests. You have been imparted a spiritual gift from God that you might use that in loving one another. Matter of fact, you get to chapter 13 after this Chapter 12 explains how spiritual gifts work. And in chapter 13, what does Paul say? Now listen, if I have the ability to prophesy, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I have the ability to speak in the tongues of angels, but I have not love, I'm like a resounding gong in your ears. This has to be driven by your love for one another. Now your spiritual gifts weren't given to you so that you can have hobbies. Your spiritual gifts were given to you so that you have a tangible way to love one another. If you're taking notes, the members of the unstoppable church are driven by the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve in the church, to serve in the church. Many of the areas of serving are a lot like serving tables. They rarely get acknowledged unless there's a problem. A lot of folks serving, right? And nobody even knows that you're serving. You know, oftentimes I try to bring attention to a lot of the roles that you may not even be aware of that, that happen here on a weekly basis as a church. For example, I'll talk about all those who serve as volunteers in administration. We've got like, I don't know, five or maybe even more than that volunteers who show up during the week and they make copies, they print, they staple, they punch holes, they bind, they file, they update the database. They do all these kind of mundane things behind the scenes. What we read in the scriptures is that in order to do that, as an act of love, it has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The Holy Spirit empowers these folks to serve. Oftentimes I talk about our, our tech team up here. Uh, oftentimes an unacknowledged crew of folks who go hard. You, I can almost, you can't see them, but I can see the tops of their heads up there. We've got an amazing crew that serve. They come up on Thursday nights while the band's up here playing around the music and taking their time. They're up there putting slides together, making sure the sermon notes are in, running through it, right, patiently. And then they show up early on Sunday mornings, seven o'clock, they're back here doing it again. And think about this, they stay until 1.30. Yeah, that's, that's big time, sir. And you don't even know who they are probably. So why do they do that if they don't get any applause? Why? Because they're driven by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to click on slides. Absolutely. How do I know that? Because I'm telling you, they would have given up and gone home a long time ago if the Holy Spirit was not working in them. Just for sake of illustration, I wanna point out another team that, that serves here and I believe serves here out of a genuine sense of love and that's our lawn mowing team. 
As I was going through this uh, this week, I thought a lot about our lawn mowing team. And not just because they do the thing that nobody really wants to do, but because of the level to which they do it. Have you noticed the lawn when you walk in and out of the church? Like uh, now it's that pretty time of year where it's fun to mow. I'm talking about heat of the summer, August, out here serving, making sure that when we walked in, the lawn was well kept. And what is, what's the spiritual significance of this? Well, first of all, it has to be done, right? right? And then we could pay somebody to come in and do it well. But we have a group of folks here who say, listen, I have a heart to serve, and, and, and I, I enjoy mowing the grass. Can I utilize what I enjoy doing to serve the church in this manner? And, and can I tell you, and I probably don't even have to tell you this, there is a significant difference between a lawn that is mowed out of obligation versus one that is mowed out of love. If you think I'm kidding, come look at my yard. I'll show you a yard that's been mowed out of obligation. I weedied about every third or fourth time. That's the edging, the weeding, and everything, right? And I miss spots, and I'm like, you know what? I've got to mow again in two weeks. I'll just get it then. And I just keep the earbuds in, and I keep on mowing. Why? Because I'm not doing it oftentimes out of love. I'm doing it out of obligation, which is what I think was going on here with the serving of tables. What began as a ministry of love had become more of an obligation. When we, when we encounter obligations, what do we do? We shift towards what's easiest, the path of least resistance. But when you walk on this campus, is it not clear that the people who mow this grass love? Not just what they do, they love serving you. It's not mowed out of obligation, I promise you that. And Alan Walker, Kristen Walker, Tony Spires, Graham Gunn, you probably don't even know who those folks are. They show up and they go hard and they work. I mean, when you walk out of that sidewalk, just look at the edging. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of I care. And I believe empowered by the Holy Spirit. Why would I say that? Because I guarantee they would have given up way back in the summer when it was hot, right? With no applause, very little gratitude or expression of thanks, just serving week in, week out. And those are just examples, right? I could keep going. All the different arenas of the church, like Paulus in 1 Corinthians 12, lots of different activities, lots of different areas to serve, but ultimately empowered by the one and the same Holy Spirit of God. And what we're seeing in Acts 6 is just the emergent of this. The apostles realize, you know what, if we just ball hog this thing and keep all the ministry to ourselves, the inside of the church is going to rot, and ultimately the mission is going to implode on itself. If we don't take care of the, of the church, those who are inside the church, we'll be no beacon of hope to those outside the church. The numbers are here. We've got tons of people jumping on board, but we need to make sure is that Ephesians 4 stuff is happening, that the church is growing on the inside, maturing on the inside, flourishing on the inside. And so they chose seven. Verse five says this. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's the same word we read earlier that said it wasn't right. It's the same Greek word for pleased. So the idea is what's beneficial here. It was beneficial to the whole gathering. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, this list of names is less about this list of names and more about what God is doing in the church. It's just set before us as an example of what was going on. Matter of fact, of these names, only two of them are going to show up again in Scripture. 
right? So uh, uh, Stephen's going to show up in the next chapter uh, in a very significant way, chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, Philip's going to show up. But then after that, we don't hear these names. But what do we know? They're still serving faithfully. Maybe some of them didn't even graduate, if you will, from serving tables. They just continued to serve tables, serve the widows for the rest of their ministry. Called by God, empowered by the Spirit to do so. We know that Stephen's about to get arrested. Philip's going to minister to an Ethiopian. But beyond that, we don't get any indication of what happens with these guys. But the main point, look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to what? Increase. You feel the bookends of this passage? The disciples were increasing. The word of God has continued to increase. The number of the disciples, again, Luke's not even going to put a number on it, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And not only that, look at what else has happened. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see in the first five chapters of Acts, this expansion outwardly. And in chapter six, we we see them tap the brakes from it to make sure that they're internally ministering to one another well, loving one another well. And then what happens? Boom, it starts exploding again. And now we're seeing that it's not just those who are are gathering in the streets, the, the common folk, if you will, but the religious leaders are beginning to convert and to follow Jesus. And so the gospel's going out, the church is thriving inside, and the whole community is being impacted now by the gospel. You know, Jesus said something significant early on in his ministry that I think is playing out here. In Matthew 5, this is the beginning of his public ministry, so we're still probably two and a half, maybe even closer to three years out from the cross, before the cross. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, um, Jesus addresses some things, and one of the things he says about his followers, the church, is this. This is in Matthew 5, 14 saying this to his followers, he says, you are the light of the world. But then he goes on to explain what he means. He first of all talks about an outward impact. He says, a city on a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So when he says, you're the light of the world, he, he means that you would be set apart in such a way that, that you would be recognized in the community, that those outside of the city would see you, be drawn to you, recognize you. But then he talks about this. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So he's talking about being a city on the hill, shining your light outwardly, right? That that the folks who are around in the other cities would see something in you. But he's also talking about internally lighting the house up on the inside. So this being a light of the world is outward and inward. And then look at how he finishes off. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we do this? How do we operate as lights? He just said it. By engaging in good works. It's not enough just to walk around saying, I love you. We've got we've to back that up with substance. How do we do that? Love is measured in self-sacrifice and serving. Okay? If we're going to be a church that loves one another well, we're going to be a church that serves one another well. That's what will ignite us as a church to be a city set on a hill, right? We don't need a taller steeple, right? We need more serving one another in humility and genuine love. Not only that, we'll be, we'll be like a, like a a house that's well lit on the inside, right? When 
issues emerge like emerge in Acts 6, we won't shrink back. We won't ignore it or brush it aside. We'll address it. We'll figure out, God, how do you want us to address this? Because here's the thing. We, we, don't wanna, we, wanna, we wanna love one another well. Show us where we're not loving one another well. Show us where we're missing it. God, expose the gaps in what we're doing. Where are we overlooking people and opportunities inside the church as well? This will sum up in this last statement in your notes. According to all that we've read this morning, when the spiritual leaders of the church faithfully and humbly equip the members to serve in ministry, the Holy Spirit causes the church to flourish and the community to be significantly impacted for God's glory. Let me read that again. When the spiritual leaders in the church, right, begin to take their hands off of ministry, quit being ball hogs, and start equipping the members, that's you, to engage in serving, to engage in ministry, the Holy Spirit, we can't cause the church to flourish. All we can do is our part, right? But when we do our part, right, it allows the Holy Spirit to cause the church to flourish and the community outside of the church to be impacted for God's glory. And there's probably a, a number of ways that, that, that God potentially has spoken to you this morning from the text. Maybe something I haven't even mentioned yet. Um, but a couple of ways that, that I, I would assume he's speaking to some of us is in terms of our serving. And, and what can oftentimes happen in the church, this has happened to me, I don't know if it's happened to you, is that um, when we serve and we serve faithfully over a long period of time, we can lose the heart behind what we do. And we can drift into serving out of obligation because it's expected of me. Brian Lamb's gonna email me if I don't serve. Darren's gonna send me a text message. I'm gonna get a phone call from Nina. And so then we start serving out of obligation rather than out of love. And what, here's what happens. When we drift that way, guess what we start looking for? The path of least resistance. And what will happen if we continue that way is we look for a way out. You know what? I just need to bow out. I need a break. So maybe this morning, what some of us need is just for Jesus to recapture our hearts, to stir once again in us this love that he has poured out on us, that we remember why it is that we do what we do here. And if that's you, listen, I, I love you, and there's no condemnation or judgment if you've drifted that way and you feel like you've moved into obligation. Um, I'm going to pray for you, though, that Jesus truly would recapture your heart. If you're serving out of obligation, you're, you've, you're becoming a resounding gong, to yourself and other people around you. And Jesus doesn't want more serving from you, he just wants your heart. Maybe you've been here for a while and you haven't engaged in serving and there's a hesitation there, either you're not sure how or where or what, or maybe you've been burnt in the past and, and this morning, maybe Jesus is awakening something in you to wanna to get more involved. Um, can, I, can, I, can I just tap the brakes for a minute and just make sure that this is a, this is a, this is a calling in your heart, this is a heart issue for you? that if you engage in serving here, please, let's, let's do this out of being loved well. Let's do it in an effort to love one another well. Volunteerism does nothing, does nothing for you, does nothing to secure your eternity or remove the shame of sin. Volunteerism will not save you. It will not fix you. There aren't enough volunteer hours in the world to fix what's broken in us. And Jesus said, let me just start with your heart. And so I would land here that if you have not come to a place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, uh, let's start there. 
God the Father has once again laid an invitation before you, and here's the invitation. If you will come to me in faith, believing that Jesus truly is my son and that he has died on the cross for you and risen from the grave to give you forgiveness and eternal life, if you will believe that in your heart, then here's what I'm gonna do for you. God says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit generously on you. And with my spirit comes forgiveness of sins. I mean, everything. Everything's gonna be forgiven. Those shackles of shame that you've been wearing around, feeling shackled to your past, feeling like you can't get free from all your mistakes, the Holy Spirit's gonna unlock those for you. And you're gonna have forgiveness and mercy that are without end. Not only that, you're gonna know what it truly means to be loved. Despite how well or how poorly you've been loved in this world, God the Father says, if you'll believe in my son Jesus, I'm gonna pour out on a, a love on you that will wreck you in a good way. It'll catch you off guard and it'll transform you. And not only that, guess what? Despite what circumstances happen for you in this world, I'm gonna secure for you an eternal life if you'll simply trust and believe in my son. And so I wanna end there as I pray and I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back up. And I'm gonna invite you to pray with me this morning. If we just take a minute, if we could all just kind of clear our minds and clear our hearts. I don't presume to know where anybody is in the room, but I do believe that God speaks through his word when we open it. So I would trust that God has spoken to you in some way this morning. Maybe you're discouraged and you needed a word of encouragement. I hope that you've heard that from the Lord. Maybe you've, just like this early church, have began to drift into obligation and had kind of lost the, the heart behind serving and why you sign up for things. Maybe this morning would be a chance for you just to lay your heart before the Lord and let him recapture your affections. I want to pray for us now. God, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for showing us through the narrative of the early church, God, how you desire to move and God, how, do, how you desire for us to respond as your church. And thank you for reminding us that our mission is not just an outward mission, but we have an inward mission as well to serve and love one another the way you've served and loved us. So God, from from corner to corner in this room, would you wash over us fresh? God, would you move through our hearts? Would you fill us once again with your spirit? Would you remind us of your deep love for us? God, would you recapture our affections this morning? God, for those of us who have drifted into obligation, Father, we, we pray you could tear down those walls this morning. You would refresh within us this gratitude and this realization that you have loved us so freely, God, that we might love freely. For the person who doesn't know you, God, would you, would you stir in their hearts? Would you reveal your deep love for them right now as we pray? moment we're going to stand to sing and if that's where you are this morning and you want to do so we're going to invite you to stand and sing with us
just want to stay seated and continue praying and hearing from the Lord and crying out to the Lord, you're, you're free to do that. If you want someone to pray with you or more information or you have questions about becoming a Christian, our prayer partners, they'll be in the back of the room. They're already back there waiting on you. And when we stand to sing, you're welcome to make your way to the back and ask one of them to pray with you and talk with you. However God's speaking to you this morning,